Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is a podcast where guests tell me the five things from their life that they would like to have in a time capsule. They pick four things that they'd like to see again from any time in their life, an object, a person, a place, a gig, even a smell. They also pick one thing that they would like to bury and never have to think of again. My guest in this episode is the Scottish wildlife filmmaker and television presenter Gordon Buchanan, who has been filming wildlife for over 30 years and has been responsible for some of the iconic moments in numerous wildlife documentaries, such as filming big cats for Big Cat Diary, grey seals and foxes for Spring Watch, a year spent with black bears in Minnesota, and his documentary The Polar Bear Family and Me, covering the life of a polar bear and her cubs for nearly a year. His work also includes The Snow Wolf Family and Me, Lost Land of the Volcano, Leopard in the City, looking at urban leopards in Mumbai, which prey almost entirely on stray dogs, an extraordinary film, as well as work with hyenas, crocodiles, reindeer, gorillas, elephants, grizzly bears, tigers, cheetahs and snowcats. Gordon has been a guest presenter on Spring Watch, filming live from his native Scotland, and after a sellout tour in 2022, Gordon is going back on tour in 2023, taking a look back at his incredible 30 years working both behind and in front of the camera. So, from all that, what are the things that he will choose to put in his time capsule? Well, here he is, telling me, and now you, exactly what he's going to choose. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm glad you've listened to the podcast, and it's really sweet of you. <laughs> but you can see I'm the sort of man whose dedication involves sitting in front of a computer, but you're the sort of man who will sit in a tent for months. 
that's my ideal place to be. And there's a, a lot of things that I know that are weird about me, but I think maybe the, the weirdest, the thing that people are probably least likely to do is spend weeks and weeks on end sitting in an enclosed space and <laughs> performing every bodily function within there. But I, 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 I love it. I really, it, it's, it feels like a total holiday to be able to just shut yourself away from the rest of the world and actually just kind of pay attention to, you know, everything that's sort of non-human. Yeah, no, I can imagine that, particularly at the moment, uh, at tax time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the moment where you go, oh, I think I might quite fancy six months in a tent. Yeah. Well, I, I was on the train back up from London the other day, and I, was, I love, I just love getting on a, on a train and because it just feels like it's time for me, and I spend the whole journey from London to Glasgow doing tax, and I thought that, well, okay, it's done, it's out of the way, but it was, yeah, there's better ways to spend four and a half hours on a train. Ah, well done you, because I was planning to do it this weekend. I know that's a bit tight. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just had a phone call from my agent saying, can you do a self-tape? Yeah, I think it's better if you do if you do your tax and self-tapes with a bottle of Baileys. It doesn't have to be, it can be, it can be supermarket's own. That's yeah. even better because it's cheaper. <laughs> Can you do that slightly drunk acting you did in the <laughs> tape? What acting? <laughs> but, I mean, the point is, though, it's not like being in a tent in the south of France, is it, and wandering down to the beach every day? No, I think it's sort of... When I first started doing it, I thought this is just excruciating as a 17-year-old to basically shut yourself in a, a little tent. And, and, you know, it was uncomfortable as well. One thing I've got very good at is sort of making myself comfortable in uncomfortable situations. But I think as time has gone on, that it's just a, a luxury to be able to just sort of sit and focus on not just one thing, but just to see how the light changes, to listen out for sounds and everything your senses get sort of, you know, hyper-tuned because, yeah, you're shut off from so much of the confusion of, of normal kind of modern-day living that, yeah, I can I've, I have spent weeks and weeks in a little hide just waiting for something to, to happen. Mm. But, of course, you can't relax. You've got to keep watching, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, there's been occasions of I try to avoid this sort of, you know, you need, you need to sleep. Mm. So sometimes I've gone into a hide and spent 17 hours through the night staying awake, come out, slept through the day. But there has been a few occasions where I've been in in a hide for days and I've had to sleep. But inevitably you think, well, something it ha nothing's happened for bloody 36 hours, so it's <laughs> going to happen the moment I shut my eyes. So yeah. I've, I've spent a few occasions setting 10-minute timers. So it's like, I'll sleep for 10 minutes. And then you wake up 10 minutes later and it's not enough sleep and then stay awake as long as possible and then set another 10-minute timer. But, yeah, it's not it's not the way to... <laughs> you, need to you need to sleep. That's one thing that is essential to human survival. Gordon, the frustration of missing those moments, though, that's the thing, obviously, that keeps you watching. I don't know if you saw it. On the internet recently, there was, somebody put up some footage and it was taken from a CCTV camera from outside of a building and a moose walked past. <laughs> have you seen it? Yeah, I have, yeah. Shook its head and both its antlers fell off. Yeah. And it had never been filmed before. Nobody had ever seen a moose shed both its antlers. And now that was just pure coincidence. But you must dream of moments like that. Yeah, I mean, and those are few and far between. You know, even sort of 30 years of doing this job, 
there's so much that you that you miss and you don't see. And there's there's you know there's so much that you do see, but not that you're not ready. But you know, often you're hiking over the mountains or through the forest, and you've got the camera in a backpack. You know, most wildlife events. If you watch, you know, any kind of great big Attenborough series. Most of them, you know, the key moments are in shot in slow motion. So it might play out for 30 seconds, but in reality, that it might have only taken like four or five seconds to, to actually happen in, in real time. Yeah. And yeah, if you've got a backpack on your back and orangutan swings from the tree, sort of clutching a litter of, of five, you don't even have time to undo a buckle, let alone set the camera up and, and no. get the shot. So you have to just accept that it's kind of, yeah, just enjoy those yeah. moments. It's something that you have for yourself rather than something you can share with people that you can film. Yeah, but you're going on, on tour, aren't you? You're going on stage. Yeah. So talking about this. So there's an opportunity. I mean, I'm sure you'll be showing clips, but you'll also have the opportunity to say, and do you know what happened just after that when I turned the camera off? Mm, yeah. Well, that's the great thing about having that opportunity to stand in, in front of a captive audience. You can say whatever you want, really, which is kind of always tickles me because every moment I've done that, I could just, I could be really outrageous or really inappropriate. <laughs> but I think to, to keep it clean, you do have this opportunity to talk about the things that you've experienced and the things that you've seen rather than, you know, I kind of always, as a cameraman or a filmmaker, driven by what I've been able to capture and what I can show you. But I think because I've done my work in front of the camera, you know, you've got your voice to convey these experiences, and I really enjoy that. And sort of, yeah, I love listening to people's stories and good storytellers because it just you're there. You don't need the images, you don't need the sounds and smells. It's kind of yeah, it's there in words. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you are doing that when you film those things. Somebody then does turn into a story, don't they? Because the thing that occasionally occurs to me when I'm watching those sort of films is I there'll be a noise or a growl or a, or a whimper. And I think, no, this cameraman's half a mile away. Mm. That's not there. It's been put on. Yeah. You know, it helps, but in a way it's a sort of an artifice, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, sort of wildlife documentaries are kind of very manipulative form of, of television because you've got this event that, that might have happened in, in 10 seconds and it's shot in slow motion. So straight out, you know, as soon as you review it in the camera, what actually happened mm. and if it's something dramatic or something touching you know you put the right music over it you put the right narration over it so you're really upping that the drama of it or emotionally engaging people in that and that's what I love about you know some of the things that I film you think oh well, that's it's interesting but once it's actually you know the work that people do post filming you know post-production composers sort of you know whoever's writing the script you're just sort of like you know adding layers and layers and making something much greater than the original thing that you you, you once saw yeah and in fact if it was just a sequence of look at this amazing thing and now there's a different animal doing an amazing thing it wouldn't really work would it it is the, yeah. the slowly being introduced to the animal mm. yeah i think if you wanted the real authentic experience just sit in a tent for four weeks <laughs> and not much will happen in that time so if, if anyone ever complains about the embellishment it's kind of the reality is and i suppose wildlife filmmaking is guilty of making it look like you just go to the Amazon and there's monkeys swinging from every tree. You go to East Africa and there's lions marauding around hunting wildebeest. It's, yeah. It does. It, it takes time. Yeah, of course it does. 
Well, but that is in fact the thing that in the end is admirable about it, is the fact that somebody has had the patience and taken the time and shown the love for those animals to allow them to do nothing for ages, to watch a pride of lions basically sleeping. And finally, one of them brings itself up and heads off somewhere. And you think, hello, here we go. Yeah. But ordinarily, if it's lions, they just get up and walk 100 yards and sit down and go back to sleep for another couple of days. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny because I don't think you really need, it's not patience. I think as a wildlife filmmaker, people think, all right, okay, there's lots of waiting around. You must need to be infinitely patient. But I wouldn't say that I'm a particularly patient person in normal life. Mm. But when it comes to filming animals, it's about optimism. It's about kind of using your knowledge and experience to put yourself in the best place or the right place at the right time and just waiting. And if you feel that you are in the right place, it's very easy to spend, you know, weeks waiting because you know that every minute that passes, it's going to take you one minute closer to, to seeing something remarkable. Mm. If I feel that I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, I can't spend five minutes without thinking this, this, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. This is not the place to be. <laughs> so yeah. It's optimism rather than patience. And that comes from a study of the animals and their behavior. And so that sort of knowledge will lead you to stand in the right place, won't it? Yeah, I think sort of what uh, I used to sort of know much less about animals and, and sort of how they might behave and, and probably didn't ever put myself in, in their shoes. So you're kind of you're in the dark, really. You think, OK, this is a place that this particular species is likely to be. But there's something nice, having done this for 30 years, that you kind of know how animals, certain animals behave and you can start trying to second guess them. And that's what I really like about, you know, the odds are always stacked in the favour of the animal because they're independent entities. They can do whatever they whatever they want. So whenever I mm. set up a hide somewhere and that animal comes along, I think, yeah, I've got <laughs> I've got one over on you, leopard. Um, <laughs> I knew you'd be there. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I told you, told you. And you're whooping and cheering, and you scare it away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just feels there's a kind of there's a satisfaction that you get when things play out as you as you expect them to. Astonishing satisfaction. Well, I mean, I've got lots of questions I have to ask you, but I think that maybe we should talk about the things you've chosen to put into a time capsule and see if they reveal them. And then if they don't, I'll ask you afterwards. <laughs> uh, the one I was going to ask you really is, how the hell do you make a living? Because it takes so long to do these things. Yeah, well, I mean, in the days, sort of early days, to make a decent living... I used to just have to work all of the time or as much time as, as possible. But then when we had we had kids and I thought, I don't want to, you know, th this is a kind of an industry that is fraught with marital breakups. And my first boss, you know, two years after working with him, he split up with from his wife and, you know, spent most of his, his life away from his, his kids. So I didn't, you know, mm. I always wanted to be a dad, have kids, be as good a father and husband as I could be. And I realized sort of not too late that, that I just needed to be around more. So that's when I started asking for more money for the time that I do work. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Good. <laughs> well worked out. Because that thing of suddenly saying, okay, now I'm off to uh, South America for eight months. Mm. That's a very patient wife. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't do that sort of anymore. I used to, in the early days, I used to go away for, I, sort of the longest trip I did was nine months straight. 
So from yeah, from age of 17 to 25, I was away all the time. And you wasn't in a relationship. I couldn't have, you know, I was I couldn't maintain a relationship with my friends and family, let alone find a girlfriend. Yeah. Um the kids were young, I realized that I was gonna miss way too too much of the things that are really important. So I kind of switch my priorities. You always say that your family is your priority, but most of us don't really behave like that. We tend to put work before everything, everything else. And at the basic level, your job, whether you love it or not, it's it's a way that you pay the bills mm-hmm. and you need your family and friends there to catch you if you if you fall. Yeah. But can I check where you live now? Do you still live up in Scotland? Whereabouts? Yeah, um, we live in Glasgow. I've been here for a good sort of 13, 14 years. It is an amazing city. It's a mm. real place. I think that's the one thing that Glasgow is. It's just, it's authentic and it's sort of, it's a very genuine place and the people are amazing and, and yeah. Yes. And you are within no distance of amazing countryside. Yeah. Well, last week, I, my New Year's resolution for 2023 was to try and, Pack more living into life. So this year I thought once a week I'm going to sort of extend the weekend by a day or to pick a day in the week and just do something that is kind of not family related or work related. And, and just last Tuesday I went up to it's a mountain sort of near Loch Tay. So there's Ben Lawyers and then there's sort of beside that there's another mountain range. And I went with a really experienced mountaineer cameraman friend of mine, sort of cramponed and ice axed up. And we went up and did some technical mountaineering. And it was just extraordinary. I, I sent some photos to people and, and they just thought that I was in the, the Alps because it looked yeah. phenomenal. And we're just in these mountains less than two hour drive away from, from home. Yeah. So, all right, let's look at the things that you've picked for me to go into a time capsule. And then we'll see what it reveals. Yeah, well, it, it might have to be a fairly sizable time capsule because these sort of these items are quite quite large. Okay, but I think my first thing I'd like to put in, I was going to say Harry Hill because I listened to your podcast with with him. <laughs> and whether and that's a good thing. That's not the bad thing. The thing you want to forget about. <laughs> no. But then I was thinking, well, maybe Matt Matt Berry. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, actually, no, maybe just British comedy or British comedians in a time capsule because I'm passionate about my work, but it's pretty straight and there's not that much room for, for humour and comedy in making wildlife programmes. But the one thing I do love is comedians and comedy. I, I just, yeah, so they would have to go in. Mm. So where do you start then on the timeline? When you were a child, what was the first thing that really caught your imagination? Oh, I mean, I was never... Into the pythons, funnily enough, I just didn't get it. I think it was something that I was that I was missing. Even something like Faulty Towers, it was on because there wasn't much on, and you that's what you would just watch. But mm. looking back on it, you know, Faulty Towers is is incredible. And Monty Python is, is incredible. But I just um we kind of grew up in a household where Laughter was a kind of an escape from things. It wasn't, I wouldn't say that, oh, we grew up in a sort of fun-loving, laughter-filled household. Mm. It was far from it, I think. We kind of lived, the childhood was kind of, you know, a bit of not trauma, well, yeah, maybe trauma and sort of upset and sort of things that were serious, unpleasant things. So I think for me and my siblings, just sort of taking the piss and having fun and trying to make each other laugh was... Yeah, that medicine that sort of took us through our childhoods. And then it's sort of, you know, now I think my wife 
was maybe attracted to me not because I'm away from home all the time, but because <laughs> I like having fun and I like having a laugh and I try to be funny. But the thing that probably most annoys her about me is that I'm constantly trying to make people laugh. <laughs> like, she stopped laughing a long time ago, but with the kids, I just like trying to inject humour into into everything and, and mm-hmm. consuming humour in kind of any in any form. Or really, it's, it is yeah, comedy or laughter. And, that's kind of a real passion of mine in life. I, I, I love it. Yeah, I think maybe if you learn as a young child that actually the way out of situations that you think are quite traumatic or upsetting is to be funny mm-hmm. and it, it takes you out of it Yeah, and, and, in fact, saves you from them, then, in fact, I can understand if, if your instinct is always to go for comedy. Yeah, and it, it diffuses sort of, you know, tension and, and situations and I think you know there's amazing female comedians around and have been for a long time but I think I've, this is my theory and through having spent time with different cultures around the world that men always are the jokers the ones that are trying to kind of burst that tension bubble with humor and I think it is because men are a violent um, mm-hmm. sex that to avoid violence you just you try and kind of inject laughter and, and, and fun into into things and that avoids you having to punch someone rather than <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a very or be good, punched. It's a very good way out of it, I have to say. Distraction, that's what it is. When people are being very serious about things, which people generally are when they're angry yeah. or upset. So if you can make the thing seem light, it can dissipate it, can't it? Yeah. How many siblings did you have? Uh, we've got two brothers and a sister, right? And a stepbrother, and and you got on all right though. Yeah, we. I mean, we kind of all fought like cat and dog when <laughs> we were kids, and probably weren't particularly close to one another. Sort of, you know, both my brothers are older than me, so we didn't, you know, we didn't hang out together. We all had our own friend groups, but when we were kind of late teens. We didn't have to sort of leave home because my mum left home. She kind of <laughs> she re- remarried um, and um, she kind of left us when we were all kind of in our late teens in this little council flat uh, in Tobermory and Isle of Mall. And suddenly, you know, without you, our mum around, we had to kind of start communicating with each other in a different a different way. And that sort of experience brought us closer together and, and we became good friends so if it's, it suddenly it felt that from going from it being a family my mum moved out and we became you know it's like sort of housemates or flatmates and and yeah it completely changed the the relationship that we have with with one another mm. yeah completely different dynamic yeah. yeah, it's interesting that, that generally when you think everything's okay, you've not got any time for each other. And then suddenly you have to rely on each other. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think um, we all get along really well. I mean, on some levels, we're super close, but we don't, I do with my sister, we kind of completely open with each other, but I don't know whether it's just a kind of male thing. But with my brothers, we talk frequently, we communicate frequently, but it's always a bit uncomfortable if there's, if there's something actually wrong, the important things. Yeah, we just kind of <laughs> bristle with discomfort. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, I think that's true of many siblings. But interesting. So there are two things that I picked up on when you were talking there. One was Isle of Mull, which mm. uh, immediately makes me realise what an amazing place you grew up in. 
Yeah. And so I can understand your love of nature. Mm. But was it that that drew you to it? Or? Well, I went to, to Sierra Leone when I was 17 for, for a year and a half. I came back halfway through, but yeah, so 17, I kind of left school and left home effectively. Mm. Um, and today that wouldn't be the route, would it? If somebody were trying to follow your route now, you'd be saying to them, well, there's university courses you can go on mm. and you'll do those. And once you've got those, you can probably get a job with one of the big companies, you know. Yeah. But the idea of 17, not on your own, obviously, you went working with someone. Yeah, well, I was, I was through school, I just arsed around all the time. The only thing that I was good at at school was, you know, arsing about. And, and <laughs> academically, I was never going to have the opportunity, particularly, I suppose, in the 80s, there were very limited options if you wanted further education. Obviously, mm. if you had all your O-levels at an A or B, you had much wider choices. But I kind of, at the age of 17, I was still at school, wasn't going to leave school with any grade. And I thought, what what am I going to do with with my life? And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do any of the jobs that, you know, I could have got sort of on mall, sort of like fishing, farming, fish farming, hotel catering. I didn't want to do any of those things. Mm. I loved exploring all my childhood I just loved being being outside, so I knew that whatever I did, you know, I thought probably fishing, I could have, uh, you know, would have, I would have been up for up for that. Mm. But when I was seventeen, I was working in a restaurant at the weekends after school, and the woman that owned the restaurant, her husband was a wildlife cameraman, and I just thought that sounds like the job for me. <laughs> and his name was Nick Gordon, and Nick, I knew about Nick through his wife, through working with her in the restaurant. That he he left school without any qualifications and he'd spent time he'd like as an estate agent as a as a driver for somebody uh, he ran a fish and chip shop but then he he loved photography and wildlife filmmaking and he sort of did it as a hobby and made a career out of it mm. yeah he he offered me a, a job completely out of the blue and I yeah packed in school as soon as I knew that it was definitely happening and. Yeah, yeah, phew, I didn't have to pay attention at school or, or find a proper job ever. <laughs> and, of course, all he was looking for was, well, a youth, that's always handy, yeah. uh, and uh, a passion for it. Yeah, I think I, uh, it puzzled me for a long, a long time why Nick picked a 17-year-old schoolboy that had never travelled, that, that knew nothing, over the the hundreds of of graduates that were applying for the the job and i I realized that well one he could shape me kind of into whatever he needed me to be Mm -hmm. also i think he kind of realized that i was desperate that i didn't have any other options that giving me this opportunity was huge and i was less likely to to jump ship and go off and do something else because i had nothing else that i could do but I think, you know, principally, I was I was just carrying lots of heavy things around for long distances. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I think you could, it was like a cattle going to market. You probably was like, yeah, he could probably carry stuff. <laughs> he's a he's a strong lad, <laughs> <laughs> and also he's got a sense of humour that would be very useful stuck in the jungle together for a long time. Yeah. I mean that that is essential, and yeah, you couldn't spend a well. I spent four, nearly five years working with Nick. Most of the time, it's just the two of us. Mm. Yeah, you got to get on and have have a laugh together. Fantastic. All right, well, let's put British humour, British, British humour into the time capsule as your first thing. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on to see what else you've got. Um, my next thing, I think this is kind of fairly, fairly broad, but it could be encapsulated in my iPhoto library, 
but in a kind of broader sense of childhood innocence. Mm. I just, our kids now, they're 17, Harris is 17, Lola's 19. We've got to the point in life where, you know, parenting is not over, but they're not relying on us in the way they're kind of young adults and they're kind of making their own plans for for life. Mm. But Wendy and I, my wife and I had this kind of grieving period over the last few years when, you know, on your phone, you pick it up and it's a memory from 10 years ago and you see this photograph of the kids and you think, oh, that time just went so fast. And when I look back through my photographs and look at the kids sort of when they were so dependent on us. So I I suppose, you know, before they could say, I don't want to do that. So they were quite (laughs) manipulative. You could just sort of like say, this is what we're doing today. And, and, um, you know, I I think for our kids, even we both have really busy lives, but we've put all that we we have and can into giving them a a good life, Mm. trying to kind of look after their emotional needs and when they were very little I just sort of you know with Kate I love I love kids and the innocence of children and and how genuine they they are and Mm. it's funny there's a cameraman friend of mine that's gone through a a couple of marriages and has got kids with a couple of different ladies and um he he loves children whenever he he sees a kid he's like oh just it's great to see them before life fucks them up Wow. So I think it's that's what I love childhood innocence and just sort of you know living in the moment and just sort of being so open to experiences and sort of yeah just I, I miss you and I don't think I ever had a childhood like that but I kind of like seeing that in other little kids where there's sort of you know that genuine true innocence and that's what they're all about yeah yeah and also that openness to ideas that children have mm-hmm. uh, not only just actual ideas ideas of things that are real but fantasy and, mm. and imagination, just what if. Yeah. That's the best thing about children, I think, is that you can suggest something to them. They will absolutely go with it. Yeah, no, I love that. It's, it's funny. It's, our, we, we have a dog, and we've had a dog for about 10 years, but when Lola was – it was Santa brought the, brought the dog. Hmm. But, yeah, Lola had been badgering us for years to get a dog, and, and it was like, no, it doesn't – it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And then I had taken her for her, I think her 11th birthday for a zookeeper for the, for the day experience. Oh, brilliant. And we had this amazing day in which she was blowing bubbles for penguins for part of their enrichment. You get these penguins running about, sort of jumping in, trying to stab these bubbles. <laughs> but they took us into the armadillo enclosure and Lola was hand feeding this little armadillo with, with mealworms. And she, she was blown away by this animal. And then that year... Uh, we got her Santa letter as dear Santa. I know that mummy won't let me have a dog, but I'm wondering if I can have an armadillo because they're nocturnal. <laughs> <laughs> and and mummy wouldn't ever have to see it. So um, yeah, that's I use that as the em- emotional leverage. And Wendy's like, we have to, we have to get her a puppy. Look at, look at this. And yeah, yeah so she's willing to stay up all night yeah. <laughs> just so she doesn't upset you. <laughs> Bless her. We've got an armadillo as well, but it's a very busy household. <laughs> My granddaughter's just get to the point where she's revealing that she has a wonderful sense of humour, mm. which is a great thing. Because kids don't really have to sort of try hard. They just think of something and say it. And I think that kind of often those are the funniest things. And I think that's why I've got such admiration for comedians, because they have to 
work hard at it. They have to think and do it and do it and do it time and time again and over and over again for it still to be still to be funny. Whereas for kids, it's it's a more natural thing. Yeah. Ah, oh, lovely though. The innocence of youth. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, but I do think those telephone, <laughs> Facebook, and all those things. This is a memory from a few years ago. I think it's almost cruel mm. because it's every day, isn't it? You go, oh, stop it now. Yeah. I'm trying to live in the moment, and all you keep doing is reminding me how wonderful things were. Yeah, kind of. That's the thing that I kind of had to deal with was that you know much of the the kids really kind of early days when you know having two kids under under two and obviously much worse for my wife because I was away a lot of the time mm. but you know part of that you're kind of wishing it by and it's like well when you can feed yourself when you can pick up that spoon when you can actually properly walk when you can climb into the car and when we can get rid of the car seats when you can read your own book yeah, yeah, and it's it's terrible, and you kind of wish these things by to make life easier for yourself, and then sort of you jump forward ten years, and you think, God, oh, they they don't need me in the same way, and I wish I wish that they did. Yes, don't you want me to read your book? Yeah, I'm perfectly <laughs> capable. I'm, look, I'm reading Dickens. Go away. <laughs> I know. Yes, it happens very quickly. Yeah, I think that's why kind of grandparents, sort of good grandparents, over engage with their, their grandchildren because it gives them that second chance. At sort of, you know, luxuriating and being around kids and maybe kind of making up for the fact that they were wishing the days and months by when their kids were young themselves. I think it's true. Being in that situation myself, you're very happy to clear the decks and go, okay, right now, this is all for you. Nothing's going to yeah. interrupt it. And it's a privilege that you don't really get as a parent, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did once, when my daughter was very young, I had to put her to bed. That thing is, oh, I don't have to put her to bed, do we? It was New Year's Eve, and I was a bit drunk already. And uh, I took her up to bed. Tell me a story. I said, okay. And I started trying to explain to her about the fact that it was the end of the year and that another year was about to start. And at, the more I spoke about it and the more I spoke about how few years she'd had and how many more she'd have to come, I've got more and more morose. So by the end, by the end of this story, I was sitting in the dark in the corner, sort of weeping to myself <laughs> with, with the thought, the thought of her innocence. And, uh, and this little voice came out of the dark and said, Thank you, Daddy. That's very interesting information. Can I go to sleep now? <laughs> and then you go, yeah, I am the drunken old fool. Yeah, you're not the only person that spent kind of New Year in the corner in tears. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the wonder of childhood innocence. Yeah. Let's put that in as your second thing. Yeah. Fantastic, Gordon. Okay, let's move on to number three. Okay, all good things come to an end, but in the world of podcasts, all good things are interrupted in the middle for some adverts to help pay for the making of said podcast. Bear with us. Thanks. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back, one and all, and should old acquaintance be forgot, you're listening to My Time Capsule with the wildlife filmmaker and presenter, Gordon Buchanan. So, let's get on with it, shall we? A horse. Right. I love horses. People often ask me what my favourite animal is, and I don't have, I don't really have a favourite wild animal. You know, I've spent time with kind of a whole range of different species around the world, and, Mm. and they're all kind of fascinating in their own way but when I was about 10 years old I'd never I'd never been horse riding before and there was a little trekking center in Tobermory and my best friend and I thought right okay let's save up some money and go go pony trekking so it was like two pounds fifty for for an hour pony trek which was a a lot of money Mm. and but we went and just as we approached the horses that were tied up it was can just a unique experience you know being around farm animals but just you know being around an animal that you're using as a mode of transport i think i was struck by how bonkers that is as a concept (laughs) it's like okay we've got legs and they work really well and sort of you know if humans are good at anything we're good at walking and and running but no i'm going to get some other creature and i'm going to sit on its back and i'm going to use that to get around the place but you know from that day on i never really left i eventually got an unpaid job working at the trekking center and i spent all my time from the age of 10 until i was about 15 16 and got kind of interested in other fillies <laughs> Philly, that's a horrible word um, but yeah i kind of I just spent all my time either on horseback or leading treks and around horses. And I just sort of, yeah, I love them as an animal. They're so emotionally wired. You have to understand horses on a kind of an emotional level to get Mm. the best out of them and to stop them booting in the head. And um, yeah, my love of horses continues. You know, I never wanted to kind of own my own horse because it's sort of that's a a massive commitment. I also think it was spent a childhood and and my kind of school years not being good at anything. Um, Certainly academically good at nothing. Sports wise, wasn't really into sports. I kind of was good long distance runner, but I was never the best. Mm -hmm. So I think horses kind of represents the first thing in life that I was that I was good at, that I was comfortable with. And I was able to, yeah, kind of do the things that other boys my age weren't. And so whether it was like caring for them or whether it was, you know, 
jumping over kind of benches or just it was something that I kind of recognized that I was I was good at and I think the first thing in life I thought hey, this is this is this is my thing yeah and was that ever competitive yeah we used to in the in the summer there was lots of agricultural shows around the west coast of Scotland there was a Royal Highland show in Edinburgh so yeah the summer was filled with taking the horses off off to these different shows so some of it would be they had some really good high-end um, Shetland ponies show ponies so I'd be showing ponies at, at kind of these country county fairs, and mm. um, but also show jumping was that was what I loved to to do. Yeah, and it's going to make me certainly. And most people that are into show jumping come from money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd found this way by putting all my spare time into looking after these horses that they'd <laughs> let me ride them competitively. So yeah, kind of show jumping. Well, that's what I wanted to to be. I wanted to be an international show jumper. Um, Just a real, such a thrill of being on a horse and galloping. But if you can be on a horse and jump over stuff that gets higher and higher, I just, yeah, it's such, such a thrill. Oh, I can imagine. I have ridden horses a number of times and I quite like it actually. And I liked that thing that once you relaxed, the horse was very easy with you. Yeah. It's amazing that ability they have to sense whether you're happy there or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's sort of, there was a lot of the, the horses that they had at the trekking centre. They were big kind of highland ponies and they're sort of, you know, fairly docile because you're putting people on them that can't, that can't ride. But mm. for the horses that they used competitively, yeah. they were, you know, thoroughbred mix or Welsh mountains to so quite highly strung mm. individuals. And you had to really connect with them and it was yeah, you had to be relaxed you, you know if you were kind of feeling stressed out and you got onto the back of a, a thoroughbred it's going to know about it even before even before you sit in its back it, it's going to sort of take you for a ride in more way than one mm. now i like the curiosity of horses as well i like the fact that they will come to look at you yeah. you're walking past a field full of but particularly thoroughbred horses mm-hmm. they're very interested in you aren't they they will come charging towards you to have a look yeah, then they're kind of their sort of success in 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 life in a wild sort of setting is sort of you know being reliant on on each other and they're a very social animal and they're kind of emotionally engaged with with each other. So as different as they are to us, they still have a lot of sort of similar makeup to to us that we rely on other people and yeah. to get through life. We have to get on with other people and face danger together. So and they just they're extraordinarily beautiful to look at you know just we went on holiday to Sharm el Sheikh years ago and they had this sort of high-end riding center close by and we walked just walked past and they had these 15 or 20 Arab bred horses and they were just works of art they were just the most extraordinary Mm -hmm. creatures just to kind of to enjoy looking at let alone actually get around on yes Hard to believe that anybody could ever be cruel to them. Yeah, yeah. But I can see a parallel between you as a young man willing to put the work in for the result. Do you know what I mean? That you would go along there, you did the mucking out, you did the brushing of the horse, you did the tidying of the stable, you changed the straw. Mm. You have to dress yourself as well, don't you? There are certain things you, you wear in order to ride. The whole process is long and involved, and you better know what you're going to get out mm-hmm. of it, really, to put that sort of dedication into it. Yeah. And then from that, you get that thrill of jumping over a bench, as you say, yeah. that moment. And there's an absolute parallel there between you sitting, waiting, watching, and putting the hours in yeah. in order for that result. Yeah. I'd never thought of it in that way, but it's, it's very true. I think it's just sort of you have to be passionate about 
about anything that takes a long time you've got to be passionate about it there's no reason to do it and yeah sort of horses take a lot of looking after and making wildlife documentaries takes a lot of a lot of time but if you're passionate about it it's kind of it's an easy easy thing to do it's not it's not a chore to put in the what some people might see as the the hard work no the closest i've ever come i'm afraid is uh, growing vegetables, yeah. which people say, but you can buy vegetables. You know, why are you growing potatoes? They're nothing. They don't cost anything. And yet the joy of digging up your own Absolutely. potatoes. Uh, yeah. No, I think kind of watching things grow. And it's, it, it's definitely a kind of an age thing, you know, because I've been doing, started this job when I was young. There was so much that I took for, for granted and didn't, didn't notice as, as much. But now, I, you know, I, I love I love gardening. I love watching things grow. I love planting. I mean, just sort of putting a seed in the ground and just it becoming something that you can eat or something you can enjoy. It's yeah, those simple, simple, simple things that are yet so complex that that just that bring me real, real pleasure. Yeah. So yeah, the garden. Through lockdown, you know, our gardens had never looked good. But, yeah, I was just spending time <laughs> just sort of tweaking and tuning it and making it the best it could be. Fantastic. Well, how lovely. That that came out of left field for me there, the horses. I never imagined that that would be you. Oh, I mean, your description of your early childhood and your life as a boy, you don't strike me as the sort of person who would have done that, or it doesn't seem to fit into the model, as it were. Yeah. But not much that you've done does fit into the model, does it? Yeah, really? well, it- it's it's funny. I think um, I've got I've got a fairly generic Scottish accent. So I think kind of people down south they hear me speaking. Okay, he's he's Scottish, but you wouldn't be able to kind of place my origins. Um, no. And I think in the world of wildlife filmmaking, traditionally it's been dominated by public school educated sort of men mostly mm-hmm. so there's a bit of an assumption that you know everyone doing this job or related to it is kind of middle class whereas I sort of have good, good solid working class credentials and I think I don't I don't bang on about it but I sort of I don't like people assuming that I'm some poshy that's kind of that's kind of well had this privileged life that... things have been handed to me yes yes but then you mentioned sort of ambitions to be an international show jumper. Then yeah, he's definitely he's definitely a top. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll we'll list the things you put in and see where people place you socially. Yes, and I'll put caviar in the time capsule as well. <laughs> of course, <laughs> brilliant. Okay, well that's three then. So we've got horses in as well, but we need two others: one that you want to keep and one you want to get rid of. Okay, another one that I'd like to keep in my extraordinarily large time capsule <laughs> is a clinker-built boat. You know, a clinker-built boat is a sort of handmade wooden boat of all sorts. You can get clinker-built boats that are kind of super-sized, but kind of the ones I like are sort of, yeah, you get little dinky ones that are maybe only eight feet long, mm-hmm. sort of up to kind of 15 feet long, but they are, you know, works of art you know when i was a kid growing up on the west coast of scotland you know the bay was full of full of boats and my best friend his dad had a uh, this old clinker built fishing boat no engine on it but we used to take it out into the bay and row around and in in Tobermory Bay, you've got the town itself, which is quite famous as a sort of, you know, iconic west coast of Scotland town. Mm. But there's the island of Calve, which is in the bay. And it's only a mile away, less than that at some points. But we used to row out there as, as kids 
And it was this kind of es- escape. It was like traveling. You, my mum my didn't have a car, so we weren't sort of, we, if we wanted to go anywhere, it was on foot or on horseback. But yeah, having this mode of transport, mm-hmm. it wasn't a car, so you didn't need a license. You could get into this boat and we could go anywhere. We could go to America, we could go to the North Pole, but <laughs> we generally stuck around the, the bay. Sensibly. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've always, I had always sort of as a kid, whenever I saw, whenever I still see boats, I always go and you know, whenever I see horses, I, I, I gravitate towards them. I just want to kind of have a, have a look at them. And then about 2011, I thought I'm going to buy my own clinker built boat. And I found one that was up on Fair Isle, which is the kind of island between Shetland and Orkney. And this um, chap who's selling it dirt cheap. I had to get it from Fair Isle to Glasgow. <laughs> but I, I got this old boat that then was sort of at least 40 years old. So now it's kind of, yeah, as old as as old as I am. And it's this sort of amazing vessel bit of skill and ingenuity to just make this boat that it can put up with, you know, the worst of conditions. Um, and it just it's wood and nails. There's no glue. There's sort of no caulking between the the um, the boards. It's just been handcrafted. Astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, and I love those boats because I think it's just a, such a you know, skill to make something like that. Mm-hmm. That you know, I suppose in the past people used boats in Scotland. You know, sort of before there were roads, boats were the only means of means of transport, and people probably didn't sort of you know pay too much attention to them now, but just I love I love being on the water. I love being in boats, and I've got I've got a kind of a rubber kayak strapped to the side of my my house. I like going out in that. But the time that I have out in my little own clinker built boat, puddling about um, on Loch Lomond, I really I really love. I love the the scenery, but I love the fact that I'm in this boat that's fifty years old. And, and do you, do you still row it? Yeah, no, I've got an engine. I've got an engine for it. I've got oars, but I kind of, yeah, I kind of occasionally, yeah. Do you know when I do put the oars in, it does transport me back to being a kid. There's sort of this wave of nostalgia that rowing, mm. and, and there's been other occasions where I've had to row boats, and there's something about that that just kind of transports me right back to being being a kid. So yeah. yeah. I kind of I do I do love that. It's fantastically relaxing, isn't it? Rowing. Oh, amazing! I mean, it's good sort of you know workout for you, but just sort of you've got to get the the rhythm right. You've just got to kind of tune into sort of you know how the boat moves, and there's all these things that are going on that become second nature. Mm. I lose respect. I've kind of always thought I can lose respect for people when I see people on horseback that can't that can't ride, especially in feature films. I could be watching them, you know, a multi-million pound movie. And I was like, they could have put a bit more time into making it look as if that person has been in a hotel. It's, like, yeah. it's Robert the Bruce. He knows how to ride. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And yeah, people rowing boats badly, kind of, it, it, it bothers me. It's, it, everyone should be able to ride a horse and row a boat because come the, come the apocalypse, we're all going to need to. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got the clinker boat. You're all right. Yeah. You've actually got one. I agree with you. I think it's an astonishing thing that people, you know, over years through trial and error, have learned how to take pieces of wood, yeah. carve them, cut them so they fit together so snugly and so perfectly. Yeah that they're watertight. Yeah. And thank God for that, otherwise we wouldn't have whiskey. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I think people are kind of definitely tuning back into those types of crafts. Mm. It's funny, just recently, because I've been going off and doing some mountaineering and hill walking, because I've got my bow, I've got 
those hobbies outside work and and Wendy kind of a couple of weeks ago we were talking about hobbies and I say well I've got I've got lots of hobbies and Wendy's like I I don't have any and then she ordered a tapestry kit (laughs) so she's been saying it's like it's like the middle ages sort of you know (laughs) i'm horseback in a clinker built boat and and wendy's sitting kind of making tapestries um but yeah i think yeah having something kind of that's for yourself not not, none of my hobbies are they're not creative things i suppose my work is creative in in a way but it's just sort of i like my hobbies are kind of experiential things Mm. that take me out into kind of into nature yeah yeah no all outside yeah. it's all to do with being outside it's uh it's really yeah. interesting like you said right from early on i like to be outside yeah well we um when we first sort of my folks split up when i was really young and, and my mum we lived in in dumbarton which is quite a kind of industrial town not far from glasgow mm. and we were living in a sort of housing estate there and there was a lot of social problems back then and i think my mum realized that having four kids on her own this wasn't the best place to to bring us up so she moved as we moved all up to to mall you know, for kind of chance of a better life. But for the first two years, we lived in a caravan. And so, you know, for us as kids, it was this great adventure that we were living yeah. in this little caravan and, you know, kind of hearing the rain slattering down the roof. I sort of, you know, I loved it. But, you know, as an adult, and once we had kids, I just thought, how horrendous must that have been for my mum to single parent, four kids living in a bloody... <laughs> in Mull during the winter. Yeah. Right through the winter. Yeah. Two winters she did it. Yeah. Wow. You know what? For the first winter we were we were in the caravan and it was, I mean, just ridiculously cold. There was sort of ice on the inside of the, the windows. If you chucked your hot water bottle onto the floor, it would be frozen in the morning. So the second winter we did manage to get into like a holiday chalet when the in the down season so we did spend the second winter in a freezing cold chalet wow. but i think being in the caravan it was like easy to get outside because you know my mum encouraged us like get, yeah get out kids in a caravan get get out <laughs> so yeah yeah being outdoors that's where all the fun is i think yeah but i wonder how many boys of sort of five or six years old get into a rowing boat now and row a mile into the bay to the island. Yeah. Oh, we're just going off to the island, you know. We'll see you later, Mum. Yeah. And off you go. Now, what? You, know, you can't go there on your own. You need flares. You need uh, life jackets. You need... Uh, oh, well. Well, most of the time I wouldn't tell my mum where we were going. I think she would have had that sort of been horrors. <laughs> but, but funny enough, my friend, whose, whose dad's boat it was, this is something that I kind of remember just fairly recently. And I was like, God, this is like, this does sound like... The Dark Ages, when we were going out in the boat, Morag, who's my, my friend's mum, said, oh, when you're, when you're out on Calv, get us some seagull eggs because they make the best pancakes. <laughs> so we used to go and collect these gull eggs, which is probably highly illegal, but we collect these sort of little bundles of, of seagull eggs in our, in our jumpers and roll back and, and Morag would make these delicious seagull egg pancakes. Wow. And I was like, must have been horrible. But, but as I recall, they were very nice. Yeah, I'm sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of seagulls out there. Let's think of it as a marketing idea. <laughs> okay, well, the boat goes in as well then. So we're just left with the one thing you'd like to put in there and forget. This is an easy, easy one. And I'm sure you've had it before. But emails, I just... <laughs> it, I, I'm a kind of box ticker, list ticker, and 
with email, it is never, it's never ending. It's a horrible way to communicate with with people. And as try as I might to say, just pick up the phone. <laughs> I will pick up the phone if I can. You know, most of the time I'm, if I'm at home, I can pick up the phone. But to sit down and just sort of anchor yourself in front of a computer and check a whole list of men. I think I'm dyslexic as well. I think that probably doesn't doesn't help that just no. seeing texts and rows and rows of messages, it just sort of makes my brain go a bit, kind of freeze up a bit. But yeah, I just, I've, I've been trying for, since this, this is <laughs> the genesis of email, to have an empty inbox. And <laughs> I managed it once or twice in the last 10 years and every time you get down to the last one it's like that overflowing porridge pot it's like <laughs> back up again and and the thing that kills me is that when email first came about i was like oh this is the best thing ever <laughs> when, when iphones were first mentioned i remember kind of it's quite kind of no i'm not into i'm into tech that that is useful that mm-hmm. will make life easier so when i read about the iphone kind of a year or so before it was released i thought this is amazing. Mm. Like anywhere you'll be able to pick up your emails. You could be standing at a bus stop. You could be on a train. You could be sitting in an airport and you could just, you'll be connected to everyone. I fucking hate that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be connected to everyone. (laughs) So if, if, if emails can go in, if it like, okay, have the, keep the tech and keep mobile phones because they're incredible. But just email, if, they, if we could disinvent emails and, and people had to actually talk to, to each other over the phone or face-to-face, huh. um, yeah, I would like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, because there are a lot of emails you get that you think, well, even if you'd written this in a letter, it would have got here in plenty of time because this is not yeah. that important. Yeah. yeah, well, that's right. And I kind of, uh, Wendy's got a, a much better philosophy with, with emails. She says, well, if it's important, they'll, they'll, they'll call you. <laughs> but then I've, I've looked at her inbox and I think there's like something like four and a half thousand unread messages. And that, uh, yeah, my brain just can't deal with, deal with tempted that. tempted to have a look at my own and see that, oh, yeah. 8,249. Oh, you get you get the gold medal. Jeez, oh, that that you just stressed me out. I'm going to come to your house and we'll go through them together. No, 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 leave me out of it. Leave me out of it. That's why they've not been read because I just go. Oh, I can't be asked. Oh, good on you. God, gosh, I wish I wish I could I wish I could do that. Um, but it's what I found is if you reply quickly, you don't even have to say hey there or dear so and so or best wishes. You can just get the message out of no niceties. Whereas if you leave it for three or four days, you have to go, oh, I'm sorry, because uh, it's yeah. just that you got buried in my... It's always some excuse mm-hmm. justifying why you haven't got back to that person. It's like, you should have bloody phoned me in the first place. If you wanted a quick answer, you could have just picked up. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Absolutely. I'm happy to bury emails in your time capsule <laughs> and you can forget about them. Because for a man who has to clear his box all the time, yeah. you really need them gone. Yeah. yeah. Actually, along with the emails, excuses. I hate. I don't. I don't like excuses because I was a long time culprit of giving excuses and justifications for people. My sister is terrible. She's like, "I'm sorry, I didn't do that." Or it's like, "By the way, I've been doing it." I was like, "No one's interested. They want you know. They, they just 
Forget forget the excuse. Just yeah. get on with it. <laughs> it's gone now. We've dealt with the fact that you couldn't be asked. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care why you didn't do the thing that you didn't do. Fundamentally, we know it's because you don't love us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I might just have that as a kind of yeah, a pre-written start to every email. It's like, Sorry, I can't be asked. Um, <laughs> but it's taken me a while to get in touch with you. I just I I can't be asked. Do you need one of those automatic reply things that people in business seem to have? I don't know what they are, but I'm out of the office at the moment. That one. Yeah, that's useful. Well, I did for a long while kind of just pretend that I was out of the country when I wasn't. And uh, I said, I don't have email, but I, my phone is working. So if you want to kind of, um, yeah. Perfect. Call me. If it's urgent, call me. Yeah. Very good. Get the dog to do kind of jungle noises in the background. <laughs> and they say, hang on a minute, I thought your latest one's about seagulls, isn't it? <laughs> I thought you were in the Arctic. That's a howler monkey. <laughs> Polar bears. Completely the wrong continent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just weird. I'm, I'm filming it. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> Gordon, I really look forward to hopefully seeing your tour and seeing the show. I think it would be a fantastic thing to come and see. Oh, thank you very much. It's actually it's really good fun doing it, but actually the most fun for me is that people really enjoy it. And there's a kind of a, it's an emotional roller coaster. I think there's the kind of the highs and the lows and the goods and the bads and the gasps and the cheers and the you know laughter. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's good fun to do. Brilliant. Well, I hope it's an enormous success and I hope I get the chance to see it, but it's been really lovely to talk to you and really great to meet you. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been great being on and, and I look forward to listening to more of your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Bless you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Gordon Buchanan. Thank you for listening to this podcast, one of a series of over 260 or so so far, all still available for your listening pleasure, and who knows, maybe one day we'll even release the visuals, which will ruin everyone's day. Please do subscribe, rate, and possibly even review this podcast, as it really helps to get us noticed and for us to make some sort of living from this work. What sort of living is for you to judge, but not too harshly, I hope. Remember, a lap of luxury is, in reality, no more than an over powdered crotch. And if you'd like to get a sense of those nether regions, then do visit me or my time capsule on social media, where we're happy to answer any questions, solve your daily woes, ease your financial problems, the last two were a lie, and take suggestions for possible future guests. The theme music, my past, the peas music, is available to download or stream on Spotify. Now, I say those words after almost every episode, but I'm not really sure what they mean. This was a cast-off production. Our producer, as always, was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm going to take the high road, but it's probably wiser to take the low road if you're going my way, as there have been reports of snow and ice on high ground. And I'll hopefully see you all soon. I'll leave you with the thoughts of our recent guest, Mark Simmons who wisely asks, to be or not to be a horse rider? That is a question. Bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 